Hi, I'm Ann Delisi. And I'm Chef James Regato. And in this episode of Essential Cooking, we speak with Abby Olitsky, who runs Spencer, a restaurant and wine shop in Ann Arbor. We talk about what brought Abby to Michigan from San Francisco and about the challenges of finding good seasonal produce during Michigan's winter months. One thing that makes me curious is when people transplant from another part of the country and they end up here. And uh, you have a story about that and you're from San Francisco. And so a lot of people um, might think of going the other way, (laughs) but you came here. And uh, I'd love for you to start by talking about how you ended up in Ann Arbor. So I ended up in Ann Arbor because I met my partner, Steve, um, who is now my husband, um, and business partner, but he uh, was working at Mission Cheese at a cheese shop. It's like a cheese and wine shop. And I was working down the street at Delfina and which was a restaurant um, that did like Italian, Northern California, Italian food. Um, And we just met because I wanted, I just was grabbing a bite of cheese with my friends and wine. And um, yeah, we kind of just started a relationship very quickly within I talk about this, but within less than six months, we decided to move to Detroit, presumably open a restaurant without even like having moved in with this person. (laughs) This was a really not smart idea. It's now been like 10 years ago, so it's fine. It worked out. Yeah, but honestly, when I think about it, I was like, this is not something I'd recommend to like my daughter. (laughs) Um, But let's see, what year would this have been? So we know where- And it'll be about 10 years in December when I met him. 2012. Yeah. Thereabouts. Yeah. And we just, I mean, San Francisco was so expensive. Uh, we definitely wanted to open something small that was our own. And we just knew that we couldn't even afford rent there. You know, where did you, you grew up in San Francisco? I grew Francisco? up in the city. Yeah. And my parents still live there. Oh, wow. So I go back. I just was there um, like a month ago. So I go back a lot and I what, get to see it. What was your formative restaurant? experience was Delfina. Delfina. I also was in Point Reyes, California, which I really liked, um, as well. And, uh, yeah, those were like the two big ones there. Um, I stayed with Delfina for about three to four years. So is that, that's time. where you knew you're like, okay, this is, I'm going to be a chef. I want to no, know. I knew place. much, much. I went <laughs> to culinary school in New York and I knew before that, gotcha, I, was like, gotcha. I really didn't even want to go to a traditional university. My parents really wanted me to, I think they did not want me to cook. Where'd um, you go? Uh, I went to NYU for college. Oh, it's not for culinary. Not for, they don't have a culinary. I mean, they have a food studies program, which I then found out about and started minoring in, which I really loved, which is like food anthropology, but also just like food sociology and studies. And I loved it and was like, yeah, this is always what I wanted to be doing, which is weird because I I could have gone a more academic route with it, but I I just knew I really wanted to be cooking. Um, We already had a chef in the family, my cousin and- I think my mom was like, this does not seem like a good idea. Charlie's a little crazy, <laughs> yeah, drunk I mean, all the time. I don't want That to is cook. exactly <laughs> what happened. Like he was, yeah, he had like an alcohol abuse problem. Like he just wasn't a healthy Oh cook. my goodness, yeah. it was true. Okay. Yeah, it was definitely true. And I think my mom was like, this is not a good career for you. And I was like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> well, wait a second. I want to go back to food anthropology for a second, yes. because I don't know if people know what that is and what you do with that and what you, what you learn yeah. when you when you take this course of study and where that would take you if you didn't cook? So it doesn't take you that far except for academia, mm-hmm. to be honest. And what um, do you learn in So food anthropology arena? is mostly the study of like other cultures or 
uh, and they're like food ways essentially. But it can also be, I, I definitely like the food sociology part, which is a little bit more of like, it's still historical, but is less like what were certain, you know, people eating in the year, you know, oh, okay. To, yeah. you know, it's like, what did we find in this mummy's stomach? Yeah. I, I don't really it's... care that much about that. Um, I really liked the food sociology part, which was, I mean, I remember learning about Detroit and food deserts and what that meant. And, um, like just feeling like I, I got to learn about, you know, people's food ways and food cultures around the world was so interesting to me and how we kind of, how they develop that or how you, they continue to get influenced by different things, um, both politically and socially. And so how did that serve you when you started cooking? Um, I think I realized how much I had already been absorbing, like oh. as I already was so interested. I was one of those people who already was reading cookbooks and wanted to like read as much about food as I could. I think that just helped me feel like I came from it, I think very thoughtfully and also just, um, I just feel like now my direction is just so strongly myself. I feel like that it's hard for me to, you know, I don't try to cook other people's cultures. I try to, um, you know, so it's like kind of weird now to think about it and where it's come from. That was not a great answer. I don't love no, that. It's, okay. I, no, I think it's a, it's a really good answer yeah, because it. it's a it's complicated. I mean, it, it sounds yeah. like you know you're diff, you're a different chef now than you were then. Yes, and you look at food differently, but your end result or where you are now, at least, would have been different had you not. Um, yeah, I think explored all of these cultures. Yeah, um, well, I it's think, part I think of with, your formative years as a, as a chef. I'm sure. I think with it's like with music, like you know really original artists still listen to music all the time. Yeah. I think it's, you know, you listen to so many, and you don't want to sound like, I don't want to play piano like this person, but like yeah. you still can absorb it. So I think that that's an important part of learning about the history of food, why these things exist, how yeah. they exist. It's, it's, it helps you create an identity because you're just more coherent in what food is. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, I eat at Spencer a lot and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but like <laughs> you really have, a great style. I mean, I feel like every time I go there, I'm like, well, that's really smart. Or that's so, that's so, that's so simple. Like I don't even, I usually just order everything because I don't care because it's always great. And that leads me to ask you like, what was your highest position in a restaurant that wasn't yours? I mean, honestly, it was just being a pastry chef at Delfina. I worked the line before and then a lot of times, which happens to women a lot, they're like, well, yeah, you should do pastry. You should do pastry. We have this great, position for, you know, like you can learn. And honestly, the mentor I had there was so wonderful. I loved her. And then she left like pretty quickly when they were like, do you want this pastry chef job? And I was like, okay. You know, um, and I, and I don't, I don't ask to like, to like give you a status. I'm, yeah. I love, oh, no, I funny. love that because to me, I think sometimes when you find chefs that worked in like, I was a CDC under this person for yeah. 10 years there, you can feel it. It's almost like they're indoctrinated where like, I feel like you have a freedom in your food that comes from never having been overly programmed by the industry. Obviously you're inspired yeah. and you're-, you're, you're No, you I, I think you're right about that. I always kind of knew that going into, I, I, yeah. Like my food doesn't feel like Delfina food. It doesn't not feel like right. a Northern California. I mean, some people eat at the restaurant and they're like, this tastes like I'm in San Francisco. I'm like, ooh, that was not the intention <laughs> since I want it to taste like you're in Michigan. But I understand that the philosophy, what they're saying is that like, there is this, kind of California philosophy behind cooking mm -hmm. that I think people sometimes taste of just like, you and know, simple. When you got to Ann Arbor, well, you intended to open a restaurant in Detroit proper and that changed, right? It did change, yeah. Um, I think we just started, 
we talked a lot to Diane Jess at Astro and Ochre. Um, you know, we kind of explored the city with them. They were so helpful and really kind. And I think we had just, you know, his parents, Steve's parents are from Ann Arbor. Oh, okay. So that was our landing spot, which I think was kind of like, we were living in their basement. <laughs> uh, and so I think I was kind of just more motivated to maybe like not be living in their basement more <laughs> than I was to like move to Detroit, you mm -hmm. know, without any like people to help us in certain ways. So I think I just started to realize I liked Ann Arbor. It kind of reminded me of Berkeley, you know, that like, mm -hmm. it's a little bubble. It's, yeah. it's its own little thing. It's very, yeah, it's very Berkeley. And I think yeah. it's, you know, when I think about Spencer, I think about the history of like, I grew up in, in, in Howell north of oh, yeah. Ann Arbor. So I used to always go to, that was like my cultural reprieve because Howell's, I always say is a dead zone, no offense, <laughs> but it's like a cultural dead zone. Um, so I would always go to, to, to Ann Arbor mm -hmm. to try to, you know, whether it was hash bash or skateboard with friends or just, you know, go get fun food, but there was never really a place like Spencer. And that's not to take away. It's just that there was easily a space for you. I can see being yeah. in the basement, thinking about a restaurant concept and being like, okay, I think this town actually will have us. Yes. Yeah. I think the town can have a lot more too. Yeah. I'm, yeah. There's a lot of restaurants that come and go in Ann Arbor. Yeah, the, yeah. Definitely. It's a, tra I mean, it's a transient community. Like, yeah, all the yeah. students. Like, I yeah. think that's part of, part mm -hmm. of the problem. I mean, it's also hard to find, uh, you know, people to work because they're transient. You only get certain people for a few years because their partner's going to school or, you know, mm -hmm. like it's just a lot of. Yeah. But um, your, your model, I mean, and, and I'm not sure if you've been to Spencer, not to throw you under the bus, right? but, uh, I've been many times and essentially you walk in, it's a wine. It's kind of like a, it's veiled as a wine shop. Like you, I can almost yeah. see somebody thinking it's a wine it's shop. It's now, yeah, half wine shop. Yeah. So you walk <laughs> in like, oh, I want a bottle of wine. And yeah. then the way you basically order at the counter and you sit down and then you have um, the things that you order brought to you. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a condensed service. Um, so it's not like a full fledged, like, you know, sit down, the waiter visits, et cetera. So to, I look at it operationally. I'm like, this is so smart. Their footprint with their team can be minimal, but their impact can be grand. And then, if you know, it's, and then you're, you're experiencing, I find it to be like where I'm like, I get up there, I'm like, ah, oh, I want, you know, give me two bottles of wine and everything on the menu, be because, which is like, because I, I want to experience it all. And the menu is designed to where two, uh, I'd say two people can kind of handle it, but three to four people can eat the whole menu. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's kind of changed since the pandemic, which has been its own thing where we've just made things a little bit, I don't know, we're doing this prefix menu that changes every two weeks because basically this was what we noticed was everyone was just ordering the whole menu. And I was like, we can just- Just do a prefix. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just order the whole menu yeah. this way. <laughs> um, and so that's what we started doing, but we still have our like wine patio that essentially is that. You can yeah. just like sit down, order a bunch of wine snacks and wine, and it's a little bit more relaxed. Although I think our dinner menu is just as relaxed as well in terms of like what we're putting out there. Like the prefix, I always feel like gets a weird- since just being in England, like prefix is just so common there. Uh, and it yeah. doesn't mean it's a certain type of like class or fancy love, right? It doesn't mean that. It just means this is what we're serving today and this is how much it costs. Um, while I feel like here, when you say the word prefix, you're like too fancy, not going, <laughs> yeah. you know? And it's like, actually, it's yeah. not a tasting menu. That's not what I'm saying. Right. It's just a prefix menu. Well, I, th I think what people forget too about prefix menus is it's really designed to make the restaurant flow easily yes. with a smaller footprint of staff. So like I encourage all operators out there to consider offering a prefix and to the people consuming meals out there, the customer base, like definitely fam familiarize yourself because it's really the best bet for restaurants. Yeah. A 35 item menu is a nightmare. 
And, you know, when you do a prefix, it's basically the chef making eight delicious things and giving you a choice to choose four of them. Mm-hmm. Like, that is really a smarter way to run a restaurant. Do you think that's become more popular since the pandemic? I feel like I see that more on more menus and more chefs are doing it, more restaurants uh, since the pandemic. I don't know why, but it just feels like less is best less is more yeah, in I, some ways. And I, I think you're also, your scope from where you're sitting, like you kind of deal with the chef community. So yeah. I think your feed probably shows that. Yeah. The restaurant industry at large, I think is still just a hot yeah. mess. Uh, I see. But I think that the, the you know, the, the upper crust of restaurants is are probably leaning in that direction more, mm-hmm. especially for the, I mean, I'm sure for you guys, the supply chain is such a mess right now. If you're trying to offer 12 different proteins, there's no chance they're all showing up, right. you know, intact in and on time. There's no way. I mean- yeah, I don't. I really struggle with protein sourcing, actually, and I, I don't even. I just feel like the laws in Michigan prohibit us to like really get good uh, animals. It's a whole nother because, podcast, yeah, I think. Yeah, I'm like I don't <laughs> even need to get into it, but yeah. it drives me insane. Well, no, so. you, I mean you. There's many times where your menu has like one. I mean, this menu coming back, there's none. It's just vegetarian. Yeah. Um, because it's like I love our corn annulotti. I want to put it on the menu. It's the season for it, so it's going on. You know, like that's. I, yeah, you'll even have you'll have like halibut cheek or like yeah. you know ham yeah, like, and that's I know. Like, that's the yeah, which that's, I, I love I yeah. love that yeah but this is an opportunity to do it right and just do one thing really really well yeah and then I'm sure as a chef it allows you some sort of freedom to say okay I'm just going to explore vegetables this is what we're going to do um, it just is fascinating to me like how. You like I'm fascinated by an, a musician that makes something from nothing. Like somebody that writes a song creates something from nothing. You guys create different things. I mean, we've seen so many foods the same way, the same approach for our whole lives. But you guys will look at the same ingredients almost and turn them into something magical in a way that we have never seen them before. And to me, that's like writing a song or creating a song from not necessarily nothing, but f- to put a different vantage point on something that we've eaten our whole lives is, to me, absolute brilliance. And that's what you guys do. And I, is that exciting or is it always a challenge, but a fun challenge? Like, how do you look at, like, coming up with a new menu? Like, Abby, you're going back at it and you're going to be putting together a brand new menu after being shut down for a couple of weeks. To me, that's like, oh, Wow kind of starting over in a weird yeah. kind of way. Um, I mean, it helps because every two weeks I have to like rem- remind myself of the direction I want to be in and mm. what it feels like. There's definitely limitations to prefix. It's not exactly how I want people to fully enjoy the food. I mean, the limitations is honestly like sometimes even the table size. Like I like the idea of like a generosity. Like I want a lot of plates and I hate the word small plates, but I just want a lot of food on the table Mm -hmm. that have been prepared differently. I think it's so exciting. Um, I just think it has this, like, I want to feel like this relaxed, like you're at my dinner table and this is how Mm -hmm. I want to feed you. Like that's the kind of, um, that's the kind of direction I want it to go. I want to say that the Ann Arbor farmers is kind of why I stayed because I started to realize that there was such an amazing farming community right around Ann Arbor, right? Like Green Things Farm is less than like, what, two, three miles away from me. Like, that's just a really incredible thing. But like all of them that come to the farmer's market, but also I get to then go to their farms and start to interact with them was just really like, I never got to do that in San Francisco. Close farms in San Francisco are still 20 miles away. 
Mm, okay. Which is like a really big, di- I mean, at least, and it's taking them an hour to drive into the city, you know, and you're not going to go, you're going to go visit maybe on the weekends or it's just not the same as me. Like, oh, I forgot to get something. I'm just going to run to this farm is such a wonderful thing to get to do. As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. Yeah, I think Michigan is such an agricultural state. We don't have the weather that, you know, central California has. I mean, when you look at like fruit in oh, California, you're like, like artichokes oh my God. and figs. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I can name them all that I miss a lot. But yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's true. I mean, California really dunks on it. Sometimes when I feel like there's like, you know, there's, there's a big, there's a big spotlight on California chefs, rightfully so. But sometimes I'm like, you guys, this is all farmer work. You know, yeah. you're, you're really, and I feel like that yeah. way a lot, especially in the summer. I know, I know David Chang once came to San Francisco and made this like huge thing. Like you guys aren't good. It's just your food. It's just this <laughs> produce. And I remember everyone being like, get out of here. <laughs> you know, and I do, I do agree. It's like, you know, Alice Waters boldly, you know, I think fed president Bill Clinton, just a bowl of peaches. Yeah. Like they weren't done. There was nothing done. She right. just were like, these are amazing peaches. And there's, uh, to me, like, there, that's, there's nothing wrong with yeah. that. Like, right now. I think now, it's more of a statement and a political <laughs> yeah. statement rather than actually, yeah. Uh, yeah, which I think is great. But right now, I'm, I'm, you know, I have dishes. Summertime in Michigan is probably the closest we get to, like, the San Francisco mm-hmm. approach. Yes. Because we just have amazing products. Like, right now, you know, I'll do, like, a tomato salad. Oh, you slice it nicely. Make sure the temperature is good. You got to, you know, salt each edge with sea salt. It's like... You're cook. You're kind of cooking. Yeah. You're like you know. You're garnishing already perfect product. Exactly. Now cooking in like January in Michigan. That's like sculpting something. You're like taking. You know. It's, it's like okay. We have root vegetables. We have some like hearty winter greens. Some greenhouse vegetables, and and basically like you know large cuts of meat. Like go. And then it takes yeah. like days to make flavor. It's in definitely the winter. tough in yeah. winter. But yeah. so so to me like I think that's what makes Michigan. Uh, ex- challenge like you're asking and like that's what makes Michigan challenging is the seasonality but that's what I find fun is like when it's like on an ice storm I'm like you know when people are like oh we should close tonight I'm like hell no let's get in there and braise something I want like a like I, I want a bolognese when and when that weather yeah. is like that and right now I'm sure you, you know you said corn and you loaded you can't if you serve like a boar bolognese right now you're probably a lunatic you know? yeah mm-hmm. i mean especially because right now to expand our seating it's all outside so i'm really like sensitive about what temperature <laughs> yeah because mm-hmm. i'm like if it's 90 degrees and you're eating food that's just already hard yeah <laughs> like, it's true yeah yeah the raw things and the cold things yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah it's i love cooking this time of year because it's yeah it's so weather dependent yeah or even wines, especially. I mean, like, oh, yeah. I'm sure with you, when you, you know, you're like, okay, let's make sure let's serve a chilled red tonight. Yeah. Because we like rarely have a big red on the menu during the summer. It just feels like it doesn't even, I mean, people can order because we have a wine shop. Like you can go and get a big red if you really want it. But yeah, I mean, Steve is like struggling to make sure he loves chilled reds. And so he's like trilling them all, like trying I to love make chilled, sure. I love chilled reds. I know. So he's trying really hard. It we, is funny. We have such a problem. And this is, you know, I'm sure this is a, it's had to be a learning curve for you because like, I'm amazed at the amount of like 16% alcohol, rich, 
red wine that Michiganders drink. I consider it steak sauce. I can barely stomach <laughs> the stuff. But like when I watch, I'm like, I'll see people, someone sit down, 90 degrees outside, walk in, a little bit of sweat on their brow, sit down and order a glass of Cabernet. No, they don't. For the don't. first thing, of course. And I'm like, you're wild. I mean, and I'm not judging, like live your life. But like, I'm just, I just think you're just wild. Yeah. Can you, yeah. can you, fat, I mean, can you, I, you can't no. put a big red in front no. of me for the first course. I think it's, yeah. I think it's just wild. Yeah. I mean, I just also really like wine to be really playful too and fun and not too stuffy. So sometimes I'm like bogged down by the big reds anyways. Like I don't want any pomp and circumstance to my wine. Steve feels a little, little differently. He's a little bit more like historical and um, understanding than I am, I would say. <laughs> That's probably why he runs the wine program and sure. I don't. Because otherwise I'd just be like, I'm just drinking you know, glue, glue juice and nothing else. And he would be like, oh God. I know. I'd probably be like champagne only today. Yeah. So. I mean, that is Steve's real dream is champagne only. Oh, so God. I mean, that, that's, I think that's the, bubble. I love bubbles. Yeah. yeah more than too. anything. Me too. It's interesting listening to you guys talk about, uh, well, all of this stuff, but um, James, to your point about the change in seasons and the challenges that come with it, but how exciting it is. Like, I like living in a place where there's four seasons mm -hmm. because there's a rhythm to all of that. You know, we, we have this anticipation of when things are going to change and what's coming next. And But the, the way the food changes, like the thought of having a big hearty meal in the fall and in the winter, that's just a lovely thought even. We're not even close to there yet. But then the lightness of the summer and the excitement of the spring. Um, but the challenges fascinate me and how you have to look at food and what is going to always be delicious and what is always going to be appealing. Um, has, it always, has it gotten uh, more challenging as the climate changes? Like, has when food is ready changed at all? Um, are things more readily available or not because um, things are hotter and longer and maybe the seasons, the time of the seasons have changed? Do you guys as chefs notice any difference in the food that is being produced because of it? Well, you know, we've had conversations before with like Michelle Lutz about mm -hmm. yep. how broccoli grows or the public. Once kids are back in school, I feel like the public is like pumpkin spice. And like <laughs> September, you're totally right. You know? so yeah, you're like um, September is the best yeah, month for September is literally like end of story. In September, into into, I mean, nowadays, like you can get tomatoes all the way into mid October, depending yeah. on the season. Mm -hmm. And like our relationship with pumpkin is totally skewed because we think pumpkin pie, which is Thanksgiving, when pumpkins are actually great in like mid October, late September. Mm -hmm. Pumpkins are like fruit, just like all the you know. I mean, they're gourd, but you know, they fruit essentially on a vine. So, I mean, pump, yeah, you'll see pumpkins like end of August. Like, you know, yeah, you, yeah. so we have a kind of weird relationship with food because of like holidays and seasonality. And if you ask Sam, my farmer girlfriend, she'll get real deep on like the year. Like, we're all off as like spirits because the year essentially should start in spring because that's what that's really what the earth mm -hmm. is doing. Yeah, I like that. So, yeah, so she, so she, you know, we, I, I could talk for days about it, but yeah, I think that the public, like the, the holidays and like the traditions, are not in tune with nature. So the idea of a tomato salad in like October, it could still be some of the best tomatoes of your life, mm -hmm. but you're emotionally wanting, you know, pumpkin spice, you know, lattes and, 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 you know, risotto when the world is telling you to eat corn still, you know? Right. Yeah. That's interesting that our, our palates are attuned to something that is not the food. Yeah, right. Well, think about when, when you see when you see Halloween, you start seeing jack-o'-lanterns. Yeah. yeah. You, know, yeah. Like, you start seeing like, you know, Halloween outfits. You're thinking about yeah. cider and donuts. All the stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it just shows kind of sometimes people's, uh, we're really out of touch with 
season, like seasons and what actually comes in those mm -hmm. seasons and when they come. Cause there are these subtle changes that happen in the summer. There's even more, I mean, I think it's always so interesting to see what, you know, like peppers haven't really started yet, right? Mm -hmm. Like green ones have, but like, there's not really the red ones yet. They're just starting, but like every week there's kind of something new that comes out Oh yeah. and there's kind of something new that goes away. And I think I, I'm always shocked to, to find where people are just surprised still like, oh, that's here right now. Or like, that's, we can't get that. I remember when we first opened, I do not have these people working for me anymore, but they'd be like, oh, I'm really, would take them to the farmer's market just so they could see what was going on. They're like, do you think we'll find kiwis there or avocados? And I was like, mm, no, because that doesn't grow here. You know, like it was just a, it's a learning experience to mm -hmm. like realize what is actually in a grocery store isn't necessarily what's being grown in, mm -hmm. you know, around you. And I think that always takes a lot of learning from both, you know, I, I wouldn't say like, I feel like my customers are amazing and they, they've learned, but, uh, and they're very knowledgeable, but I think a lot of times we just aren't aware. Like there's such a, um, yeah, like there isn't, a, there's a disconnect between those two worlds, which is so funny to me because they're like the same thing, right? Yeah. Like a grocery store should be providing produce that makes sense. But you know, with our markets, we can get anything, any time of year. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's to your point, Anne, the music industry is broken, right? So is the food industry. <laughs> yeah. So we, we're working inside of a very broken system. So we have corporations, we have, you know, uh, school systems, we have, I mean, everything is working against us. You know, it's, so you basically have, like, look at, like, you know, people think seasonality based on Panera billboards, you know, like, oh, it's strawberry season. Well, I, I mean, no, actually, that's like the first berry. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah. now it's going to actually take like two months in Michigan. Yeah. To yeah. Get going, so. Now it's like, you know, now we're on cherry. It's like, yeah. you know, so you basically, you look at like what slushy Sonic is doing, what's Panera doing. And that's what people think is seasonality. Pumpkin spice, which actually has no pumpkin in it, which a lot of people maybe don't even know. But it's like, it's like, these are just a blend. Of, it's almost like chai where it's like, yeah. well, why can't we just talk about chai? Like, Chai is yeah. actually cool year round. Or like, I think about like quatre épices, like the little four spice blend. That's like basically pumpkin spice blend right. all year round. That's used on like most pork items in France. <laughs> exactly. And to me, like, you know, yeah, garam masala, there's a lot yeah, of spice right. blends out there where it's yeah. like, what, why does it, what? what? Like, so it, it's, an inter it's interesting to be in food because you want to be an ambassador. And then sometimes it sounds like you're being either, you know, too too stuffy if you're arguing about like kiwis and avocado like, i'm yeah. with you but you're like oh you know like yeah i mean i don't think i've i don't think i've ever bought a kiwi in, in mabel gray's history mm -hmm. you know and so <laughs> yeah, and, and i'm not I, I like kiwis but i just yeah. don't think about them you yeah know? well in california like i got kiwis in the winter that was something that happened you know yeah. so like there were things i had to learn by just coming here and realizing like no none of that grows here um you know like there is seasons in California, which people are like, no, they're not, but there are. And, but the, the <laughs> fact is we just get a lot more produce all year round. Yeah. It feels very consistent in the like amount that you get. And here it's like, there can be really lean times. I find in February, March, I am like, yeah, it is a painful time. And it makes me feel like how much more should I have preserved or thought about in the summer? You know, like it, it is, it's definitely the hardest time to, to figure things out. Like sometimes I feel like I'm only getting spinach <laughs> and the root crops that like, I try to pre buy all these root crops, but they just don't last till February. Yeah. March. Mm -hmm. Like the end of the story is like, you can't really keep them unless you've preserved them or done something. But, like I can't keep them like that. Like I once tried to buy so much winter squash being like, I can run this all winter, but like by February, March, they're going bad. They yeah. just can't stay. I mean, I don't have a root cellar, which I think would probably help things. 
Uh, well, if you had a root cellar, let me ask you, how long can you keep? The, I Could mean, you keep root vegetables it in squash. it? You, I mean, you said, win- I think winter squash is too thin-skinned. I don't think it, it yeah. can't fight back well. I mean, like acorn, pumpkin. I try, I bought all these acorns, and they started just because I didn't have a root. Like, it was yeah. just in this ambient, you know, temperature. Yeah, yeah. It just, they started to go. I mean, I think if you, I mean, they sell our apples in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, you, no. a lot, I mean you're buying, you're eating a Honeycrisp in July. That's not... Right. No, yes. That's mm-hmm. not a new apple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like you can do it, but yeah, you definitely have to have some infrastructure and you know, yeah. yeah and a restaurant setting. No, you probably can't get away with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or it's like, how do I, you know, my new thing is how do I tell farmers? Like, can I buy all your carrots? But, but can you, you hold keep on them, to it. Yeah. Can you keep them in the ground? Yeah. Until mm-hmm. that like so weird springtime where I could come and get them. Well, there's a, there's actually cherry capital. Does I do a lot with those guys up in oh, Travers. Yeah. yeah. And they like, there's like, there's like, Carrot farmers that'll leave carrots in the dirt, yes. but in the in the barn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like you know, you kind of like you kind of harvest them as you go. So there's, I mean, that's the thing about Michigan is like we're a huge state, and like the farming community has been beat up for so long, and monocropping took over, you know, for decades. So now you have people fighting back. Like they're not. You have to have multiple farms and vendors in yeah. order to run a restaurant. People get confused about like, you know, what farms do you use? I'm like, I don't know, 30 different, you know, nobody can just provide endless amounts mm-hmm. of crops year round. And usually right. it's like, you know, it's like my I have a bean farmer, bean farmer, Kevin at Sheridan Acres up in Bad Axe, and he does heirloom beans and they're incredible. And I was talking to him. I'm like, are you, is this your full-time gig? He's like, no, it's like a hobby. Like being a bean farmer right now can't pay his bills. And that's a crime because he's like the best bean farmer. His beans are gorgeous. Yeah. And it's like, you know, what do you mean? What can he sell? $2 a pound for heirloom black beans? Like it's a crime. You know I mean? Yeah. Farm, farmers have it worse than anybody. And so well, I think at the yeah. core of what you and I do is, is just trying to showcase how amazing food is yeah. because of farmers. Yeah. Yeah. Because of like nature and farming and like good sustainable farming practices that make things taste even better. I think, you know, like when there's more of a holistic approach to the, you know, to everything. I just was, um, so we're bringing back two wheels of Westcomb cheddar, um, Westcomb. We went to go visit there and it's just like this. And he was talking about his cheddar and I was surprised Steve picked this cheddar because he was really going in there for Montgomery's cheddar. This is like the famous English cheddar. And he picked the Westcomb instead. And we went there and we were talking to Tom who, is now the second generation he he has been um like it's been in like kind of running since the 1870s this cheddar place but his kind of new holistic approach of like what he was doing and the fact that like steve could really recognize that just by tasting at neil's yard i mean he was like i just care about what my cows are eating like we're just making sure we're not planting these monocultures and he was like but now i realized um you know i want to start i I realize I have all this grain. So now I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do with all this grain. So he's now sending it off to a bakery in Bristol to make beautiful like sourdough bread. And he's just like creating this almost like whole farm ecosystem around the fact that he makes cheddar, which I thought was just like so beautiful and cool. And I was like, this man is, I'm, you know, like I want to see more of that being like happening because I realized there are always byproducts of farming it's not a perfect system, but that you can use, you know, he's trying to find people to eat the dairy cattle. And I was like, that's amazing. You that's know? So like, I mean, that's so Ireland is doing that a lot right yeah. now. England. Cause they're like, these are the, I mean, these cows are like wonderful. They're eating yeah. wonderful things. They're like out in the most beautiful place on earth and people just don't want to eat them. And the meat's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it really is. I mean, I just was at a restaurant in, in uh, Galway, Lignum, 
and their entree was, you know, basically an aged, you know, dairy. It's like, it's like a seven or nine year old cow, I think. Yeah. And then, so people think that's cause I mean, most cows you eat in America are like a year and a half old, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty young. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, you're, you're the old expired animal, but I mean, I don't, I don't view it that way. Yeah. I think it's, it's all connected. It was, yeah, it was so cool to watch like these kind of, and I realized like, you know, more and more of the farms we're even working with kind of are trying to do, you know, they have to do things in order to make other things work for themselves. Yeah. And usually it's like revenue streams or it's yes, like utilizing products. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really how the, the, the society was built, you know, in, in these micro food systems. And, you know, now we have a global economy and yeah. parts of it are failing. So yeah, it's, it's a, uh, like I said, it's interesting being inside of the food system in America and, trying to you know covid nothing really changed it just got worse all these things you're seeing always existed it just now they're exploited yeah so yeah this food system is is pretty is pretty broken but i do think that restaurants like spencer are these beacons of hope at least for me as a chef where i'm like yes this place matters you're doing it right our thanks to Abby Olitsky for joining us. Thanks to you for listening, and... We would like to thank LaMarca Prosecco for their support. From the hills of Veneto, Italy, you can never go wrong with Prosecco, whether it's in a spritz or drinking straight. Essential Cooking is produced by me and Elise, along with my co-host James Rigato. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Connor Anderson, with production support from David Lyons and Patrick Burness. Original music by the Mallet Brothers. Essential Cooking is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. 